This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books with me, Susan Cahill. Have you ever thought about writing a memoir? Or if that sounds like too much hard work, what about employing a ghostwriter to write it for you? Well, on this morning's show, one of America's most successful ghostwriters, Mary Jane Robinson, highlights the healing powers of telling your own story and discusses the fine line between psychotherapy and ghostwriting. A ghostwriter should not cross over into the realm of psychotherapy. However, to be a good ghostwriter, you do have to be interpretive and be able to help an individual navigate their story. And in the process of people telling their story, they oftentimes will connect and understand why a certain choice was made, where they received a certain skill or gift by having the opportunity to go back into their ancestry, for example. But I I will sit and discuss pain, anguish, joy, and try to embrace that with the individual. As you do that, more comments will come from them, more understanding. And it's those things that people like to read. And celebrated British thinker, adventure, and all-round provocateur, George Monbiot, talks to me about the rewilding of the British Isles and his rather unusual fixation with sheep. Certainly in Britain we have this utter fixation with maintaining what are basically farmed systems rather than natural systems. And we seem to believe that we we have a duty to to keep grazing sheep and cattle, even in conservation sites, even though we know the amazing amount of damage that they do. But first, Mary Jane Robinson is one hugely interesting lady. Throughout her career, she's written over 100 books, mainly non-fiction, telling other people's personal stories. Mary Jane has written for the Captains of Industry for Vietnam War Vets, and her most recent writing project is on the much-publicised Mendes brothers, who are serving life sentences in an American jail for killing their parents. But what's really interesting about Mary Jane is her own personal journey and how her life experiences have shaped her approach to writing. Well, Mary Jane spent some time in Ireland recently at the Annam Cara Writers and Artists Retreat Centre in West Cork. And on one of her quick trips up to Dublin, I spent a lovely Sunday afternoon with her chatting about the many colours and patterns in life and how some of the small and the large events shape who we are today. I asked Mary Jane about the role of a ghostwriter. One way to look at it is that writing is an expertise. It is something that some can do and others cannot. And just as you would choose to find a very skilled attorney to help you with a legal matter, people who know they cannot write and can afford to do so will engage a ghostwriter. The beauty of ghostwriting for the storyteller and a non-writer is that if you're working with a good ghost, the book can only be as good as the interviewing. So one of the most important skills of a good ghostwriter is to be able to interview well and extract the story from the storyteller. So there's a 
giant burden lifted from the storyteller by working with a ghostwriter, by not having to sit there and belabor over paper at a computer screen and not knowing how to put it all together. So if you have a good ghost who knows how to give you a guided tour of your life and make it interesting while not simply being a litany of facts and events in your life by doing interpretive work and trying to search for wisdom and life lessons, there is a beautiful burden lifted in not having to do that oneself. And you've had a very dramatic life. I know that you were married once and how you got into ghostwriting uh, was a very remarkable story. Can you tell me about that? I began my ghostwriting work. Uh, It had initially been at the encouragement of my husband who was killed when I was 33 and he was as well. And we had two small baby boys. And he was killed on Christmas Eve in 1985. I had put him through law school. He had put me through graduate school. And I was always writing, editing, and fixing people's writing for them as the head of a reference and research department in a library. And he would watch me work with other people's work. And I could somehow work with their work as though it were my work, but make it better for them. And that's how I began really understanding that I could edit with other people's words. And I, though, had had planted in my mind a seed in college days from the autobiography of Carl Jung, who, though the word was not even in the dictionary, ghostwriter at the time when he did his in 61, um, he worked with someone who recorded it him talking about his life, and that individual put it together. Initially, Carl Jung was not a fan of autobiography, but after doing his own, he realized the beauty of putting one's life together by connecting dots and understanding how you make it from one dot to the next through life and, you know, being the proponent or founder of analytical psychology. He was a wonderful one to come up with that. And a book I'm referring to of his is Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, published in 1961. So after my husband's death, of course, there's tremendous recovery and, and grieving time. But I would hear um, the little whisper all the time of, you really should be doing this. You really should be doing this. Do what you thought you would do in college. Because when I saw that on Carl Jung's book, and it said, interviewed, and recorded by, I really felt that I'd found my future. And I did not need the credit for the book. It's the other person's story, but I had the beauty of putting it together for them. And you said that um, the most inspirational story that you've ever written has been the story of your mother who has Alzheimer's. Yes. I, I would say that without any hesitation. And oftentimes, you know, the, the stories that people are interested in that you have done are the celebrities, the politicians, the people of historical importance, um, mobsters, criminals, and so forth. And that's the jazzy thing to talk about. But I did take the time, and I'm so grateful that I did, to write my own mother's life story, within which I included my father's. And at the time, we believed that our mother would be the same always. She was 88 then, remarkably strong. And within two years was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. So at this point in her life, she doesn't know who she is. She doesn't know who we are. But the book that I wrote and published on my mother's life is our family's only opportunity to connect with our mother. And when she asks a question or is confused or wonders who we are or who someone else is, we can get her book turn it to the appropriate page, read her the story. And even if she only connects for those 30 seconds, the fact that someone who struggles with Alzheimer's has connected at all 
with their life is a lovely thing. So when I did this in the beginning, I've been ghostwriting 25 years and had no thought whatsoever that there would be a time that I would understand that capturing one's memoirs when one can remember one's life could also be a way to hold on to one's life, connect with your life, and remember who you are, who you were, and what you have done. And I'm seeing that with my mother on every visit. The one other thing I would say on that that I've also recognized, you know, so many of us have visited nursing homes and residential care facilities, and elderly people are too often regarded as the person in room 235, or they are identified by their particular disease or infirmity. And I noticed when I did my mother's and had her book at her bedside that suddenly those who were just walking down the hall, chatting among one another, the aides and the nurses, counting pills into little white Dixie cups, suddenly once they knew something of my mother in room 235, she became Eleanor. And she was a person with a past and a history. So I think if all of us had some way with our elders to capture something of them, it will help them going forward. Because quite often in life, it's going backward that helps us to move forward, especially in grievous times. When you're ghostwriting, Mary Jane, I imagine people process a lot of challenging memories, a lot of traumatic memories. But I imagine there's a space of you allowing the story to be told. And also there's a a space where you have to draw the line because you can be the ghost writer. But where the ghost writer meets the counsellor or the therapist, I imagine Mm -hmm. that's a very tricky area to navigate and a very tricky space to navigate. Mm -hmm. It is tricky. And a ghost writer should not cross over into the realm of psychotherapy. However, to be a good ghostwriter, you do have to be interpretive and be able to help an individual navigate their story. And in the process of people telling their story, they oftentimes will connect and understand why a certain choice was made, where they received a certain skill or gift by having the opportunity to go back into their ancestry, for example. I can remember just recently with a gentleman, we were trying to understand why he had taken this major detour in his life and not sought the career that people expected him to. And right in the middle of our discussion of that, I said, you know, that is exactly what your grandfather did. He took an alternate route, ended up in the same way, and did it very similarly to you. And it was one of those ahas of understanding that brings um, a sense of peace and resolve to an individual who's not understood something. But I, I will sit and discuss pain, anguish, joy, and try to embrace that with the individual. As you do that, more comments will come from them, more understanding. And it's those things that people like to read. How did you get through having five stillbirths in a row, for example? One woman did not want to tell that in her book. And I said, you know, you have no idea, Beverly, if Perhaps someone down your line of descendants may have a stillbirth. And by my asking you the question, how did you manage this, they may find some little kernel of hope or help in the way you processed a difficulty. And it wasn't too long after that that she had a granddaughter who had a stillbirth. And that was the result of her having told the story. They had something to latch on to in their grandmother's life. And how did she manage? And as an aside, she managed by pulling her sheet up over her head in the hospital when she heard all of the other babies and the mothers and the joy. And she counted blessings. 
You strike me, Mary Jane, as somebody, a very good listener, but also somebody very shrewd. So are there situations when you're with people and they're being very creative about the truth? Are they kind of sketching over details? And sometimes maybe do you have to hold back or do you go in for the kill and ask? What happens in these situations and how do you gently extract the truth? Well, it's an excellent question. It's very astute and interesting question to answer. And yes, I do find sometimes periods where there seems to be an exaggeration or it doesn't quite line up with something they had said earlier. I never will come right out and challenge that because I have no knowledge of the truth. I don't know what their truth is. I only will get a sense of what may not be the truth. But what I often do, and I will say too that to the point of people and their their honesty. In the situation they're in with me, it is so intimate and so personal that there's almost a sense of obligation in them to not lie. It's like you're sitting with your mother, your sister, your best friend. That's how intimate it becomes after many periods of interviewing. And they don't want to deceive me as they would perhaps in a bar or over dinner. But if I think that something wasn't true. Sometimes I'll ask the question three days later and revisit it and say, going back to your your comments about those early days in college, could you review that again, exactly what happened in that group you were discussing to see if the tale is told the same way? The other thing that's vital to understand about ghostwriting, and I think it's something that is missed very often, we are writing nonfiction, and it is my responsibility to protect my client. And because I get the subject matter from interviews and in conversational mode, people will exaggerate or they will blow a number up or they'll say, oh, our home, my hometown back in the 1950s was probably 5,000. I won't go to print until in the quiet of my own study, I have researched how many people lived in Cork City in 1950. I'm writing nonfiction. This is history. And I've got to make my client credible. So There are areas that I can, as a research writer, I can qualify the truth. But the areas where they are the only ones who know their truth, I will work hard to try to make sure the tale is the same each time. But also sometimes when I'm alone writing it, if I felt something was a little off, that doesn't get in the first draft. And it's never missed because they don't know, they don't remember everything we talked about. And what about buried trauma? You will come across that from time to time. You know, if you have an elderly man in his late 70s or 80s, he could have served in Vietnam, could have been in a prisoner of war camp. So how does that affect the playing field? I work and have worked very heavily with veterans in the United States and primarily the World War II veterans in, in the early years because we were losing them. And I've moved on now to the Korean War veterans in capturing their testimony for our Veterans History Project, the Library of Congress. And whenever I interview a veteran specifically for their wartime activity, it does bring about a tremendous amount of emotion for many of our World War II veterans in particular. And I would assume it's the same for those who served from the European nations with the Allies. They've never discussed it. They haven't talked about the things that are talked about in foxholes among their comrades. They put it behind them wanting to move forward in their lives, and they do that by not talking about it. So many of them, when they've achieved the age of 80 and they're speaking about it for the first time, it is the first time. Things that they had not talked about with their family. And there's a lot of emotion, a lot of tears. But again, I go back to that kind of sacred ground sense that you get with a ghostwriter if you have a good connection with them. And you create somewhat of a hearth 
that's just the two of you and all things are sacred in that time that you spend together. And I never am greeted with embarrassment by even the toughest of men. Um, I worked with the first army captain from the United States who was inside the gates of Buchenwald. And so we all can imagine what he saw. And it was very cleansing for him to review it, to remember those things, and then to have it in writing. It was quite lovely. But one comment I will make about um, hidden pains grief that's been put away, situations of lost love. One area that I notice and I always mention to my male clients, and most of them seem to be male, they're the ones that seem to tell their stories more, I have never interviewed a man that was, you know, well into his life, whose mother had passed, who did not cry when I make the subject turn to, let's talk about your mother. Can you draw a portrait and words for me of your mom? And the first thing I'm greeted with is is tears in the eyes. There's something about a mother and a son, and it's always there. That's remarkable, but it's absolutely gorgeous nonetheless. I imagine there's loads, though, who feel they um, marry the wrong man or woman or let go the love of their life. There is that. And I do run into situations. I did recently um, a man who had been through an absolutely painful loss through divorce. And prior to are discussing it on tape, I sat with him and said, how should we deal with this? We can either be factual, because facts are facts. This was the marriage. This was the divorce. These were the children from the marriage. But because so much of the work I do is for posterity and legacy for families, the woman who left the man, and it was a horrible divorce, and I don't know that he'll ever get over losing her, she remains the mother of the children who will be receiving this book for posterity. So the point of my work is never to hurt, never to be libelous, never to be slanderous. The point is to capture history, and we go for the best of the best in history work that's about a family. Um, I would never encourage, and I don't know that I would ever go to print with all the horrible things about the wife, because those who are receiving the work are the children of that woman and may see her totally differently. But of course, there are issues you have to dance around in ghostwriting. But if you gloss over them, you don't have a good book. And why do you think men like to tell their stories more than women? I believe that... um, If you're doing the work that I do, which I would say 75% of the 100-some books I've written are for legacy, generally, you know, the men are the leader of the household. Um, They become the captains of industry. They're the ones that have succeeded with this family. And they're encouraged by their children or their wife to tell the story of their life because they've achieved. But there are many, many lost stories, obviously, of tremendous women. And one of my favorite stories to tell is the story of, um, it was a large family in the United States in the coal mining region. And a woman had had eight children, lost her husband in the mines, raised her eight children on her own in, in a cabin. And encouraged all of them, though, to go on to school. And those who had the will to do so did. And one of the sons became a very big-time attorney in Chicago, and he wanted his mother's life story told. So I went to Appalachia, and I sat with her, and I arrived to find a rather shriveled, retiring, very intimidated woman who was shrunken and slumped in a chair in the cabin in her 80s, very reluctant to begin, did not want to speak to me, had no idea why her son would want to do this. What story could she possibly have to tell me? She'd only raised eight children on her own in a cabin in Appalachia. Well, what more interesting story than what she had to go through? I encouraged her to try with me. Just 
try with me. Let's start for half an hour. I'm going to take you on the trip of a lifetime, okay? I'll guide you. So we began to speak, and I began to ask, and she began to tell. And I began seeing her sitting up straighter and straighter. And I never go on longer than two hours as stories lose their luster after two hours. You get tired, and we stop, and I say, I'll come back tomorrow. Well, at the end of the second hour, she did not want to stop. And I said, all right, right, let's. we'll go on a little longer. At the end of the third hour, I was tired. And she was sitting upright at that point. And she reached over when I said, well, I think we ought to stop now, Evelyn. And she reached over and put her hand on my knee. And she said, I was some kind of woman, wasn't I? And it was so beautiful to watch her do that. And when I returned the next day, she had red lipstick on. She was just wonderful. But the power of telling our story is transformative. Now, you're working on an extraordinary story at the moment. Can you tell me about that? As um, most people will understand, in ghostwriting, the whole point of it is that in my world, anyway, no one knows you're working with a ghostwriter. And I like it that way. In books that used to be as told to celebrity as as told to the ghostwriter's name was on it and then the trend went to um, celebrity with the ghostwriter's name and now there's a trend to be contractually under agreement that you're not going to be there but your name's not going to be on it but some people insist but I normally cannot speak of anybody I'm writing about because I'm under contractual agreement but in this particular case it's going to be a rather academic case incredible research and they are asking me to put my name on it. And the case I'm speaking of is the Eric and Lyle Menendez case that in the United States, Court TV was launched with the Eric and Lyle Menendez murder trial. They are the two young men at 21 and 19 living in Beverly Hills who murdered their parents. And their trial was the first on Court TV live every moment that they were in the courtroom. And their very nature, the the Hollywood background, the vast wealth, the beauty of the two of them. They're stunning to look at. And their trial captured our nation, and everyone was talking about it. It ended up in a hung jury in two separate trials first, and they had a second trial, and they were both found guilty and have life without parole in American prison system in California. But the the world was talking about it also because it was one of our first trials that used abuse of a child as a defense, as they claimed child abuse against their, their father in particular and their mother's silence in not doing something about it. But there was silence on behalf of so many people, relatives, nurses in the school, teachers, coaches, people in that period when they were being abused in the late 70s and early 80s. But it put the abuse defense on the map. It did not work for them. They were found guilty. There is still a great question about the veracity of the um, defense. But it was the psychologist for both of them, who is a remarkable doctor, Dr. Stuart Hart, who is the one who found me, engaged me, to go to the prison first to meet with Lyle Menendez. I just left in July, maximum security prison in California. And he's been in prison now since he was 21. He's approaching 45. And to sit with him, knowing what I do know of the story, and I don't know the half of it, and no one knows all of it. We weren't there. Um, I had the opportunity to sit with him in prison. And as the mother of several sons, I could look at this young man some 24 years after he committed a heinous crime in a most horrid way, and I could say to him, if you were my son, I would tell you that I am proud of you. Not for what you did, but the work that you've done on yourself in incarceration and where you have come 
to this point, I can look at you and say you have developed into quite a man, and I would be proud of you. So theirs is now in process of finding a publisher, trying to make a decision how to go forward with this. But up until this time, they've not spoken to anyone um, you know, directly except in preparing for their trials. So it's, it's quite a, a wonderful assignment. It's a remarkable position to be in and a remarkable viewpoint. Can I ask you, when we were sitting down earlier chatting before the interview, you have a whole bag of notes here from uh, ghostwriting notes from a book that is coming out. Could we end with those lines? Um, one thing I would like to, to add, you made me think of it when we sat down and first met just a few moments ago, but it ties in here because I had the great pleasure of working with the mother of um, Sue who has the retreat that we all love so very much in Iris. And her father, remarkably, was the poet in residence at Brigham Young University and a tremendous American poet. And when I was working with Sue's mother on her story as those of the Mormon faith believe that they must leave their stories for posterity, that's part of their belief system, I found a little ditty which was one of Sue's father's Clinton F. Larson's poems, the smallest, least complex of anything he wrote, because he, he wrote brilliantly and in a very complex manner. But he wrote a little poem, and it was, Your history is you, so do not slight it. You know not who you are until you write it. And so that accompanied Sue's mother's story. But I was reminded just a moment ago, too, of the last line in the memoir that's coming out in Christmas, uh, a woman who was with the Dutch resistance in Holland, and I worked with her there. And at the very end of the uh, the book. She says, at 87, I now know I will not live forever, and I appreciate life more than I did when I was young. The war years may hold my most vivid memories in life. Writing my memoirs, though, has reminded me of the rest of my life. Oh, my life has been wonderful, and best of all, I know it. So right there is the proof in the pudding of, yes, there's excitement in working with celebrities and people of note and larger-than-life living, and that's what people gravitate towards in the bookstore and memoir work. But memoirs are for everyone. You can be a nine-month-old, and you have a story to tell.
and that was the prolific American ghostwriter Mary Jane Robinson. If you'd like to learn more about Mary Jane, well, why don't you visit her website at www.maryjanerobinson.com. Coming up next, one of Britain's most creative and provocative thinkers, George Monbiot. Talking books on News Talk 106 to 108. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.